Well, good morning, church. This is one of my favorite weekends of the entire year because uh, uh, I, I call it leftovers weekend because I love leftovers. We had some cheesecake on Thanksgiving Day that set me free. <laughs> sent me to a place I've never been before. <laughs> and unfortunately, I finished it off yesterday, but I love the weekend. Also, I, I love to be able to come together and and worship with you because there's always a glow in everyone's face on Easter weekend, excuse me, Thanksgiving weekend, because Easter weekend too, but because you've been with family. So uh, welcome to everyone. If you're streaming somewhere around the world, we have folks streaming around the world this morning. Uh, over to Converge, welcome to you this morning to South Campus, to West Campus. I love the Parker County campus out there, especially the Hive, which is where Lynn and I do most of our ministry out there. And by the way, if you live in Parker County and you're looking for a traditional worship experience, we have fantastic contemporary out there as we do at all of our venues, but also we have a traditional worship experience with a choir and orchestra. So you'd be welcome to come out there. Uh, my assignment this morning is very unique and most wonderful. It's Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. So would you take your Bible and turn there, please? Also, get out your sermon notes. Again, welcome to everyone on this wonderful weekend. Now, we're in a series that is covering the entire book of Matthew. We're coming to the end. We're now in the week of our Lord's agony, uh, at the end of his life before the crucifixion in Matthew chapter 26. It's a pretty remarkable text. The series sermon, this particular pericope of Matthew, is entitled, Do You Hear What I Hear? It's Asking ourselves the question, what's God trying to say to us? So beginning in Matthew chapter 26, by the way, that in the, uh, the, in the Blue Bible, wherever you might be, if you have one, it's page 832 in the SV Blue Bible under your chair or in your pew, wherever you might be. Look with me at Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Just follow along with me if you don't mind. I'll read out loud. You just follow silently. By the way, this is immediately after the Last Supper the Lord's Passover, with his disciples. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which would be James and, and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See? The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
And may God bless the public reading of, of his word. You know, every Tuesday at 1030, oh, by the way, may, may I note something right quick in this text, is that in the Gospels, Mark mentions the same, the same uh, historical narrative. He mentions it, but he adds that the disciples never knew what to say back to Jesus when he came to them the three times there in the garden. Luke mentions two things that are not in this text. Number one, that Jesus sweat drops of blood. Great big drops of blood. I think doctors would call that hemotridesis. I believe that's what it's called. It actually happens. Blood and sweat mixed together. And also mentioned that angels came and ministered to Jesus the second time he was back in the garden. John doesn't mention it at all. John mentions the narrative going on behind the scene, what Judas is doing while this is taking place. So you get a full orb picture from the Gospels of this situation in the garden with the Lord Jesus. Now, to the sermon prep team, we meet every Tuesday, 1030, most Tuesdays, and we have one objective, that is to the pulpiteer, whoever's responsible for the message. Uh, and by the way, we have representation from pretty much every section of our church's staff. We have the women's ministry represented. We've got the executive pastors there. Whoever the pulpiteer is, uh, our specialists in millennials, uh, Ben Fuquay's there, etc. So we meet together, and wh- whoever is whoever's the pulpiteer presents an outline, which is what you sort of have this morning, mine, and also presents... Uh, um, a manuscript, if that's appropriate for that morning. And we talk about it. And here's the goal. The goal is not to tell the pulpiteer what God's been speaking to him and, and his heart about. It's, it's to say, okay, so what's the big idea here? What does God want you to get in the car after the service is over and talk about on the way home? We call it the big idea. What's the message? Are we hearing what God's saying? Do you hear what I hear. With this particular passage, and we had our meeting last week, with this particular passage, I have to ask myself the question, what is God saying? And I sat down with a pen and pencil and thought, okay, he's talking about the garden. We're in the garden, right? And maybe this is about the two gardens in human history. You know, there's another garden if you're reading of the scriptures, you should know about the first garden, where there was the first Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam. And in that garden, what happened? Well, Adam disobeyed God and brought into this world disease, pain, death. Is it possible that what God wants us to see in this narrative that he's given us historically, he wants us to see that Jesus is reversing that, that Adam disobeyed and Jesus is now in the garden obeying. In fact, there's some historians and theologians who actually believe the very same place where this took place is where the original Adam betrayed God. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Jesus was obedient in this garden, but originally there was a beginning in the garden, and now there's an end in the garden, and that's what God wants us to see. I I suggest that's probably not the main thought here. Maybe the main thought here is the failure of the disciples. Did you notice that? Three times Jesus comes back to them, and they're sleeping. Their eyes are heavy. Uh, maybe it's about the disciples. Maybe it's about the fact that they failed Jesus three times. He said, watch and pray, and they couldn't do it. And, and, and by the way, in, 
in, in the garden. And let me show you a garden here, uh, the, the garden, the God of our Olive Garden, so to speak. This is contemporary, and you'll see here that's the, the Muslims' mosque there on the, on the mount. The, the original temple was somewhere right there by that mosque. And if you go down the hill to your right, up right and to the top, you'll see a church. That's the Church of the Nations. And right behind it and to the side of it is where the guard, ancient garden was located, the Olive Garden. So they went down the hill and up the hill to the garden. So the disciples were in the garden, and there were 11 disciples. Remember, Judas was missing. So we're told in the Scriptures here that Jesus leaves eight of them at the gate. I believe this garden was probably privately owned, just like the donkey that Jesus rode into the, into the temple, into the city, rather, on Triumphal Sunday was privately owned, and someone gave it to him, just like the upper room was privately owned, and someone loaned it to the Savior who was empathetic with the ministry of Jesus. I, I believe this is privately owned, and Jesus went here often to pray, so he leaves eight of them outside the gate, and three come inside, and those three betrayed him, so to speak, failed him. And maybe that's what this is about. This is about the betrayal of the disciples in a time when Jesus really desperately needed them. Let, let me argue against that. They started on the previous Sunday with the triumphal entry. They watched the hosannas of God's people as he rode that colt into the city and the people accepted him. But from that point forward, he was rejected. Every day, the rejection got worse. They watched it. There was an emotional high and emotional low. He kept telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. That's got to take an emotional toll on you, wouldn't you think? Someone that you love and you're not really understanding what he's saying. And then there's the Lord's Supper, the, great, the Last Supper, the Passover that very evening, and they had that. And then in John, we're, we see John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, Jesus actually teaches them uh, in the upper room there. And then they sing, they leave, they go down the Kidron Valley, they go up to the garden on the other side. It's about midnight, and would you be awake at midnight after that kind of a week? Probably not. So I dismiss that. I submit to you that's probably not the big idea here. Well, what about this big idea? I really thought this was a possibility. Maybe it's showing the empathy and the patience and the love of Jesus, even in difficult situations, because he came back to the disciples and said, you know, I know, men, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And he didn't browbeat the men. He didn't yell at them. He didn't give any pharisaical curse on them, anything like that. He just simply made that comment that he understood, so to speak. And I, I, in the midst of all that tremendous stress, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's really the big idea. So what's the big idea? Two keys, two clues, and they're very important. One is a word. The other is a consequence. Notice in the very first sentence of verse 36 it says he went to Gethsemane there's the key Gethsemane is a Hebrew word two words actually put together which means the place of the olive press the place of the press you know scripture beloved scripture is super deep stuff like I've read many times it's it's like the ocean shore of the ocean it's it, children can walk in it and and wait in it, but elephants can swim in it. It's, there's levels of truth, not hidden, just apparent. The word Gethsemane means the press. Let me show you what a press looked like in the ancient days. This is an ancient press, olive press. 
Olives, ripe olives, which by the way was a big part of the economy in those ancient days. And remember, this was the olive garden. They're put inside that basket in a tow sack. And then this large stone is placed on top of them and a fulcrum is put there and then stones on the end of the fulcrum and it's just left there for days because the pressure of it does what? Pushes down on the olives, the ripe olives, and the oils, just that olive oil, which is what we call extra virgin olive oil. That's the first press of the first day. And it runs down into the basin and then into containers. The last press, days later, they use in their lamps because it's full of contaminants and other olive pits and so forth. So this, this, this is what it looks like. This is the place where Jesus went. This is what it's about. This is what this message is about. It's the place called the press. Was Jesus being pressed? Well, look, look at your sermon notes with me, would you? The term Gethsemane is one of the clues what's happening here. It was a dark night for Jesus. He didn't sleep that whole evening. And on your sermon notes, please note Roman number one, Jesus models for us how to endure the most difficult and distressing moments of our lives. That's what this message is about. That's what this pericope is about. That's what this text is about. Jesus going to this place for us. And in a moment, I'm going to compare it to our lives, your life, my life. Because you see, we have dark nights of our lives too, don't we? We all have Gethsemane's. We all do. It's part of life. How do we see this? Well, the Savior's ex- experienced this place of anguish and the press of life because, first, he experienced great rejection. He was rejected by his own people. You know, they said Hosanna on the previous week, and now they're hating him. He's betrayed. Obviously, he was being betrayed by his, one of his close followers, Judas. He's being betrayed. Uh, he was lonely. Can you imagine the loneliness of this night? Totally abandoned by his disciples. In just a few hours, not one disciple will be with him. In fact, we don't see another disciple at all. It, but Peter follows him uh, into the trial and into the crucifixion, but Peter disappears, and John is at the, at the cross only as a disciple mid-morning, just a few hours from this. Loss. He's grieving the broken family he's loved so much. He does not see his mother again until he says to John at the cross, Behold your mother. And I think of Exodus, uh, the fifth commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother. And surely that was weighing on him. Fear. Folks, Jesus was completely free of any responsibility for sin. He obeyed the law totally in every iota, and yet he's dying for being a lawbreaker. Common criminal. Pain, foreseeing the agonizing physical torture and abuse he's facing, nails, crucifixion. He knew intellectually what was ahead. The cross was on the horizon. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 5.11, he was the sin offering. He's the lamb. The next morning at sunup, the priests up in the temple would begin to sacrifice lambs and sheep, and their blood would flow down into the Kedron. And he crossed that very Kedron on the way up to the Olive Garden, reminding himself that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Despair, overwhelmed, and dread of, of separation from his father. Sorrowful. In fact, the text says he was heavy, sorrowful, 
never having been separated from his father before. Uh, listen to Psalm 22, 6. Uh, Psalm 22, write this down in your notes. Look it up today. Psalm 22 is what Jesus felt on the cross. It's an amazing prophetic psalm. Listen to what verse 6 says. He's thinking in his spirit, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That's how he felt. That's the press. I mean, you can feel it. I can feel it. This, the, the spirit in that garden was pressing him down, pushing against him. One theologian writes this, We cannot comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony because the sinless, holy God incarnate, he is able to perceive the horror of sin in a way we can never perceive it. It's hard to understand how pressed he was. Second clue to what this is about. Luke chapter 22 tells us, I mentioned it a moment ago, what happened to Jesus. What happens when you press an olive? Oil comes out. What happens when you press a man? He bleeds. Hemotidresis. Luke says large drops of blood squeezed out of him's body from the anxiety, the fear, the discouragement, the rejection. Drop it. It makes, makes you really kind of want to cry. The Savior does not doubt God in this situation. He doesn't disrespect his Father. He doesn't curse God and die. What does he do? Which is the big idea of this message. What does he do? He prays. He prays. To me, his, this historical text is given to us to teach us how to pray when we're in the press. That's what this is about. Our lives have similar experiences of rejection, betrayal, loneliness, fear, pain. Don't deny it. Every single one of us, those watching, those of us here, wherever you are, you know, we all have our Gethsemanes. We do. By God's sovereign will, sometimes by our own sin, in this situation, it's God's sovereign will for him to save our lives, literally. This is his Gethsemane. We all have our own. So my question is, what should we do? How should we handle those dark nights of life? Nights when we don't sleep all night long. Lynn and I have had a couple of those. If you have children, you'll have a few. If you have grandchildren, you'll have a few. If you're getting older, you're going to have a few. How do you handle it? What do you do? That's what this is about. This is about how to handle life when it's a pressing thing. Jesus models this for us. Notice Roman numeral two. Like Jesus, when the press of life comes, it squeezes you. What should you do and not do? Well, should pray. And I have six insights here. How to pray when you need it most. Ready? Here we go. Here's the first one. This is low-hanging fruit, but it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Never go into the place of suffering alone. He took the three men with him. And by the way, the men did fail him in a sense. And I don't totally believe Jesus took the men, not because he needed them to pray. He wanted them to learn from this. 
But we need those that we love, those that are around us, to pray for us when we're in difficult situations, dark nights. Ask those you love most to pray for you. Never go into the garden alone. That's what the body of Christ is about. And we're so silly. I've been so silly in my life. You know, we don't want people to know where we're suffering. No, I don't want to tell people about that. We're just, it's just not, that's not appropriate. There are those in your life that you do trust and you know would pray for you. And I'm just like you. I know many times you've had people say, would you pray for me? And you say, yeah, yeah, sure. And you totally forget. But there are others in your life that when you ask them, they'll pray for you. They'll be there for you. Sometimes we feel rejection and betrayal in our lives. Something at work, something in the family. You know, there are other leftover things on Thanksgiving weekend other than just food. The leftover feelings from rejection when family comes and some betrayal in relationships, some fear and some anxiety and just get, get some of those folks you love to come around you and pray for you in these difficult times. It's just silly for us not to do that. Years ago, our son had a spontaneous pneumothorax. That means he had a lung blowout. And he was 15, I think, or 16. And uh, there were some dark nights for us when your son's in the hospital. For We were with him, I think, one time, 16 hours. Um, it's an all-nighter. And so we called some of you and said, please pray, please pray. And you did. And he's a healthy, marvelous father now of his own two-and-a-half-year-old. And someday he'll have a dark night. Someday he'll have a Gethsemane. Get people to surround you and pray for you. Second, verse 39. Also we see this in Luke 22. Find a special place to humble yourself and be alone with God. We need an altar. Every Christian needs an altar. A place to go and pray. A place that you meet with God. I have that in my life. I've had different places over the years. I know my sweet wife does. I know where her altar is. Uh, You need to have an altar in your life. A place to go and pray. An earthly place, so to speak. Jesus, it says in Luke, he went a stone's throw away from Peter and James and John, which is probably about 20 yards. I mean, some of us can throw a stone further than others, but, but maybe 20 yards or so. And I'm sure they even heard some of his prayers. But he had a place, an altar. And I never do read this passage. I don't think about my sweet grandmother. My grandmother, her name is Bessie, and uh, she was a dorm mother at Bacone College, which is a college in Muskogee, Oklahoma, that Native Indians, it's a fantastic, it's one of the oldest colleges in the country, the oldest one, I believe, in all Oklahoma. And uh, she, she was a dorm mom there. She had her own little house inside the dorm. And my grandmother, Bessie, was, uh, this is a paternal grandmother. The way I remember her, she had a big bun. You, you write the typical, uh, draw out the typical grandmother look, and that's her. A bun, tiny, she was three foot one, I think. She was so little. <laughs> And so, and she had, you know, how the apron starts up here and goes down like that. And uh, she was, loved Jesus so much. She loved the king. And I can remember being in her home, in her kitchen. And on one wall over here, she had the king at his altar. She had a, uh, it's a copy, a knockoff of Heinrich Hoffman's Jesus in the Garden. Isn't that marvelous? 1890 he painted that that's his description 
of the altar that Jesus found in the garden to pray. Now, the funny part for me and why I always remember this is because on the other wall, just across the room from her in the kitchen, she had the other king that she loved so very much. She had King Elvis. Um, she loved Elvis Presley. She loved her kings. Uh, Jesus was the, he was the priority. Do you have an altar? Do you have a place that you go to pray? I believe that's what the Lord's saying here. If you've had loss or grief, you know, folks in our, life, in our church have had, they've lost a child in the sense of a wayward child who's gone away. You need a place to come back to, an altar to come back to. Three, tell the Father your heartfelt needs and desires. Jesus went back into the garden. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If it be possible. What was the cup, do you think, he was afraid of? Death? I think not. In that cup were all the sins of humanity past and all the way up till you. The dregs in that cup, no human being has ever known. And he drank that for us. His sin sacrifice for you and for me. And by the way, I, as a theologian now for 50 years, not necessarily a great theologian, but a theologian, I've come to the conclusion there's two ways to get to heaven. What a heresy. The first way is you have to be perfect. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. If you're Dax Prescott, quarterback for Dallas, whether you like Dallas or not, but if you're him, that would mean every time you stepped on the football field and played a professional game, you had to throw, every time you threw a pass, it had to be a touchdown. Every single time. It's humanly impossible, isn't it? And there's some games for him, well, it was real bad. But nevertheless, you had to always throw a pass. Perfection. Or the other way, which is the biblical way and truly the only way, is it has to be imputed to you. Someone has to earn it and pass it to you. And that's what's called imputed righteousness, that Jesus has actually done that for you in his sinlessness. John 1.29, we read, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He drinks the cup for us. Second Corinthians 5 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. By the way, I do know this for a fact. No one goes to heaven unless their heart's already there. And only Jesus can take your heart there. Postpaid. It's free to you. Expensive to him. He prayed, Lord, if it's possible, if it's possible. So, tell the Father your heartfelt needs. Fourthly, always remember to pray, thy will be done. Your best will be done. Thy will be done. We cannot tell God what to do, friends. There are faiths in Christianity. There's certain cults and faiths. Groups that believe you can tell God what to do. You can say things a certain way. You can speak in words into the atmosphere, and those words have universal appeal to God, and He's going to do whatever you ask Him to do, and that's just all you know. That's just not true. Just not true. What we want to do is ask Him what's the best. Big struggles in our lives, we need to say, Lord, in these dark times, what's best? Jesus said, not my will, Lord, but yours. I, I want this to pass, but if it can't, 
Not my will, Lord. Your will be done. Your will be done. You know, recently I've been, I don't know why, I'm just kind of tired of listening to politics and so forth. And I thought, well, I'm going to listen to country western music. No, seriously, country western music is philosophical. It's theologically correct some of the time. And it's definitely good sociology. I heard one the other day I thought was really interesting. It, I, I don't remember. I only heard it once. I was on the radio going down the road. It, said in the, it went like this. The main byline of the whole song was, God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. And I thought, that's right. I'm not sure about the beer thing, but that's right. right? Well, Garth Brooks has this country western song that I think is pretty amazing. It's, it speaks to this point right here. The song's called, Lord, Thank You for Unanswered Prayer. And it's about this girl he was in love with in high school and thought he would spend the rest of his life with her, but then they graduate and go off into the world, and at the 10th anniversary, they come back, and he sees her and says, God, thank you for unanswered prayer. (laughs) Truthfully, we we laugh about it, but truthfully, what do we want more than God's perfect will for us? Our own will? We know that's a tragedy. What's the best thing for me? Nevertheless, Lord, your will be done. Fifth, verse 42 and 44, pray frequently to get your will aligned with God's will. What does that mean? Do you notice he went back and forth three times, which by the way, this is a good theological study for some of you might be interested. Elijah prayed three times just like that in 1 Kings 17. And Paul prayed Three times. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, back and forth. What was happening there? I think the Spirit of God and the angels were speaking to Jesus and saying, align yourself with what you know to be the sovereign will of God. Align yourself. Get used to it. Get familiar with it. If you're in a period of fear because you've lost a job, you see your job's going to be lost or your finances are going to be destroyed or your relationship's in trouble or whatever your dark night is, your Gethsemane is, keep going to that altar till finally you say, Lord, whatever your will is, and then I'm going to align myself with that will. I've had in my file for a long, long time this poem. You've heard it, but I think, but listen to this. I prayed for strength that I might achieve God, give me strength. I'll be achiever. I'll do things for you. But I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I pray for health that I might do great things. You've done that before when you're sick. Lord, give me health. I'll get up. I'll, I'll serve you. I'll do everything you I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I pray for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I prayed for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for things that I might enjoy life. (laughs) But I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, yet everything I hoped for, almost despite myself, my prayers were answered. And I'm among all men most blessed. Yeah, just aligning ourselves with what God's doing in our world, in our lives, in that dark night. Finally, quickly, don't stop praying until you can face the matter. 
with faith and trust in God's sovereignty. Christian, if you haven't come to the place where you believe that God is sovereign, and when you're walking in obedience with him, he will take care of your life. My wife and I are living testimonies of that very fact. He is sovereign. Believe it. You know, I have friends who are single, and they believe God's never going to bring me a husband or a wife. And, you know, just trust God's sovereignty. Trust his timing. Trust his love. Trust him. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer, through prayer. So it's about prayer. It's about our Gethsemanes. It's about the press of life. That's what this passage is about. Anyone feel pressed this morning? And you say, well, not today. And I, 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 this is not pro- prophetic. I don't know about tomorrow for you. But probably. Somewhere along the way, it's how God shapes us and forms us and prepares us, right? Those of us who have been around a while know that's true. So wh- what is God saying to me in this sermon? Me. Am I hearing what he's saying? Here, here's what I'm hearing. First, I'm hearing this. Jesus knows and understands what I'm feeling in the dark nights of my life. And he loves me just the same. You say, I'm suffering this tremendous betrayal, loss, depression, pain. Who could possibly know what I'm experiencing? Jesus. Pressed. Secondly, sometimes God gets us out of our Gethsemanes, but most often he walks alongside us through them. Yeah. God didn't take him out of the Gethsemane. In fact, I love, if you look back at chapter 26, and notice with me the very last part of that text. It says in verse 46, 45 and 46, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour has come, it's at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is coming. At that moment, Judas and the torches were coming up the mountain. He's saying, this is God's will. I'm stepping into it. He's not taking me out of the garden. He's going to walk with me through the garden. And he does. And then finally, Gethsemane is the place where you and I make a decision to say, God, empty me of myself and let me depend on you. In 2010, Colt McCoy, whom I've never met, uh, Colt McCoy played for the national championship as a longhorn. They played against Alabama in um, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. I can't tell you how much I look forward to that game, wanting a school in Texas to beat a school from Alabama. And it was exciting, if you may recall back those years ago. Colt McCoy has won more than 50 different um, special awards and athletic endeavors at UT. Some people say he's the most prominent college athlete ever to play college football. Did you know that? The first play of the game, the first play, 
Not the last play. The first play. After all this preparation and all these years of work, we were playing for the national championship. He gets a stinger on his arm, his shoulder, and he, he can't throw the ball. He's out of the game. I was super bummed out because they beat us like, you know, horribly. And we lost Alabama. And he had worked all these years, had all this ahead of him, everything ahead of him. And, and, and I read in the paper that he was at peace about it. He was a, Colt's a strong Christian. I heard his father speak a couple of months later about that incident. And someone asked him, you know, how did you prepare his path? How did you, you know, every one of us wants our children to walk this path that's been prepared for them. And his comment was amazing to me. He said, well, you know, I realized early on I couldn't change the path for my boy. So I had to prepare my boy for the path. And that's what happens here. God is preparing us for the path. He may not take us out of it. I've seen him heal people. I've seen him take people out of the garden. He may just walk with you through it. That's sufficient for me. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for all who are in the press of life this morning. That you would heal them. Bring them out of their Gethsemane. But if it's not to be, you prepare them for the path ahead in a way that only you can do. And I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.